the kids are getting settled. I have a book in my library called Farewell Sermons. Any familiar with this book? Steve's got to be. Anybody else at all? This is a, a compilation of sermons preached in England by various pastors in August of 1662. You might think, well, what's significant about August of 1662 that a book might be compiled of all the various sermons preached by various pastors on that day? Well, on August 24th, 1662, the government in England put down an edict led by Charles II. It was called the Act of Uniformity. And uh, that act of uniformity required all pastors, ministers in England to perfectly conform to the Book of Common Prayer. And if they didn't conform to those religious beliefs, they would be kicked out of their church. They would be ejected. And this book contains sermons that the pastors preached the very last time they were going to preach to their congregation. More than 20, less, a little bit less than 2,500 pastors refused to submit to this act and knew that they would be rejected from their church. These are farewell sermons they preached. They're very insightful. What is it that a pastor would want to give? His parting comments to his people. You can pick that up and, and read that sometime. In Matthew 23, we have the farewell sermon of Jesus. It was the last time that Jesus would publicly address the multitudes before He was taken away to be crucified. He knows that they're going to be His last words publicly. Certainly after this, Matthew 24, 25, 26, all covered with words to His disciples privately. But this is the last time He's going to preach publicly And he knows it. And his topic he chooses is against the Pharisees and the scribes. He chose these words of warning, really, against the religious leaders, the ministry of Jesus. I mean, throughout the the ministry of Jesus, he was in constant conflict with these leaders. I mean, they never liked Jesus. They never believed in him. And they always resisted him. You think about the ministry of Jesus. Even when He performed great miracles, they said He cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. They criticized Him for doing miracles on the Sabbath because He would be a Sabbath breaker. They demanded other miracles from Him and thus revealing their adulterous hearts. They criticized Jesus as being a lawbreaker. They said, oh, you break the Sabbath, right? You don't wash your hands before you eat bread. They constantly set traps for Jesus, trying to ensnare Him. Bringing even a man with a withered hand into the temple, knowing that He could heal, trying to tempt Him that He might heal on the Sabbath. They might accuse Him of being a Sabbath breaker. They asked Him tricky, controversial questions about divorce right in the heart of a politically charged environment that um, a wrong answer there would get His head cut off just like a wrong answer. was a right answer, but with John the Baptist was cut off. They tried to get him with other theological controversial questions. We saw that in Matthew chapter 22. 
constantly trying to ask him questions to trip him up. They were always against him. And here in Matthew 23, Jesus' patience had run out. They'd seen enough, they'd heard enough, they'd witnessed enough, and still they were unrepentant. And particularly, even the last six verses of Matthew 22, we see their unrepentance. When Jesus proved beyond a shadow of the doubt from the Old Testament that the Messiah would be more than a man. I mean, how can he be son of David and yet be Lord of David? It can't be because he's a, a mere man. It's got to be because he's bigger than that. He's higher than that. He's God. He's man. Putting the, the whole Christology together and they refuse to acknowledge Jesus and repent. And Jesus never again will speak to them. It really illustrates, even before we get into our text this morning, a great point of Scripture. As patient and as kind and as loving as God is. There reaches a point where he will turn his back and give a hardened sinner over to his own desires. See, it's the kindness and patience of God that leads to repentance. But if you remain in your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you can only expect wrath and judgment from God. And that's exactly what we see here in Matthew 23. Seven, eight times in this chapter, we're going to see Jesus pronounce woe upon woe upon woe. These scribes and Pharisees. Look at verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Again and again and again. Jesus pronounces these woes. That's not a good word. That's not like, whoa. It's like, woe to you. A, a view of pity of expectation, of judgment coming upon them. These aren't kind words. These are words of judgment. And they come upon the Pharisees and scribes because of their hypocrisy. Look again at the mantra. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, verse 13. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Right? Look at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Time and time again, he condemned them because of their hypocrisy. Jesus condemned them because they weren't real. They were fake, in it for their own good, in it for their own desires. This morning we're going to begin the discourse of Jesus with the first 12 verses where Jesus begins to expose these religious leaders. Now notice verse 1 says that Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to the disciples. Right, this explains the audience to whom Jesus was speaking to. It was a public discourse in the hearing of all, not necessarily even directed to the Pharisees alone, directed to the multitudes and the disciples. I would have liked to have known where the Pharisees were. Maybe they were off part of the multitudes. I think, think certainly, I think certainly that they were within earshot of hearing these things. That's right in chapter 22. They were right there all the time. I think Jesus turned around and then spoke to them the multitudes, and I think that they were there. These words really are coming against hypocritical leaders. The first 12 verses of this chapter aren't really woes against these scribes and Pharisees, but are advice to the common people as to how to deal with these scribes and Pharisees. Jesus is saying, you know, I know I'm going to be gone here in just a little bit. And you've got these religious leaders that you're going to have to deal with after I'm gone. Let me give you some advice of what you ought to do when I'm gone and you deal with these religious leaders. And so my sermon title this morning is When Hypocrites Lead. 
when hypocrites lead. Now, in many ways, this is a very difficult passage for me to preach. I mean, I work very hard in my preaching to teach you the Bible and really to press its application home into your lives. James chapter 1, verse 22 says, Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. And I don't think that my job is done just when I teach you the Word. I want to show you how to apply the Word so that you may not just be a a hearer. I don't want to create here at Rock Valley Bible Church professional sermon listeners. Ultimately, the job is done when you hear the truth and you know how to respond. So I work very hard in application. And so my message this morning, which is entitled, When Hypocrites Lead, leads me in my heart of hearts to pray that you don't have much to apply today. Right? Catch my drift? But I know that in my own heart, there is immense hypocrisy in it. And I know that as I preach, I preach far beyond what I'll ever live. And I know what it's like. I know that I like to put forth a picture of my life, which is better than it really is. I know that I often offer up prayers when my heart is distracted. I mean, think about it. You're standing up here. It comes time in the religious service to offer up a prayer. And you know what? Your heart is drifting. What are you going to do? The show must go on. So oftentimes, I pray with a distracted heart. I know very clearly of my own hypocritical heart. And so certainly I know that my message this morning will ring in your ears and you will find plenty to apply You see it in my life, you see it in the life of other leaders, Lance, or in other future leaders of our church. Listen, but my hope and my desire is that you just have a little bit in the message to apply today. When hypocrites lead, this is a good spot for us to pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, if there is anything that you want at Rock Valley Bible Church, it's realism. You hate religious shows. You hate words without actions. You hate it when people play religious games, toying with you as if you were another person to manipulate. But Lord, you see all of our hearts. And you desire us simply to be real and honest and to confess our sin and to admit our failures, not to try to put a show that puts forth like we are better than we are God, to do so is only Phariseeism and only do so leads to hell. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that you would help the leaders of Rock Valley Bible Church, the future leaders of this church, right, to lead with integrity. Right, admitting mistakes, admitting faults, admitting weakness. That we would be honest and real, not to be like hypocrites. And Lord, I pray that this advice of Jesus to us today might ring in our hearts what to do when hypocrites are in positions of leadership or even when those in leadership show hypocritical signs, tendencies, whatever they are hypocritical in, I pray that these words of advice would be taken deep into our hearts. You might find us obedient to the words of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, here's my first point. Number one. When hypocrites lead, respect their authority. When hypocrites lead, respect their authority. Right? Look at verse 2. The scribes 
and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all they tell you to do, do and observe. Now, in my study this week, this, this, this verse here is really the verses that um, shocked me. I mean, we know of how Jesus constantly battled with the Pharisees. We know of the woes that Jesus will pronounce against these Pharisees. In no uncertain terms, He will condemn them strongly. And yet, Jesus still calls the people to respect their positions of authority. Right? He says they sat in the seat of Moses. In some synagogues, right, this was the, the central seat that was placed in the front which the Pharisees taught. In fact, when my wife and I went to Israel some years ago, we went to the, the ruins of the... Um, the synagogue at Chorazin. And in the front of Chorazin, there was this this stone seat that sat in the front of the church. In fact, if you children have notes, you see me sitting on the seat of Moses in Chorazin. It was a seat of authority. It was similar to maybe a stage or a pulpit in our churches today. It's a place of authority. But the surprising words come in verse 3. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. Now, it seems that Jesus here gives blanket approval to all they teach. In fact, the Greek text is very emphatic, right? All whatsoever they tell you, you are to do. Now, in some sense, right, you need to temper these words in light of everything that we know about Jesus. If you just take these words in and of themselves, you'll be led astray. That's why you need to take all of Scripture all together to understand what it means. There certainly there are words that these religious leaders spoke that Jesus would deny. I mean, think of the Sermon on the Mount, right? He said six times, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Who said these things? The scribes and the Pharisees. He was correcting them. You've heard what these scribes and Pharisees are saying, but I'm telling you this. Really correcting them. Furthermore, we know clearly that these scribes and Pharisees went astray on their teaching of the Sabbath. They went astray in their teaching of how you are defiled. They thought defilement came from outside. Jesus taught in Matthew 15, defilement comes from within. They denied who Jesus was, questioning his authority. On top of that, in a few moments, Jesus will call them, verse 24, blind guides. And so certainly Jesus doesn't mean that you ought to follow everything they say, because there are things that Jesus condemns, and yet... I don't think we ought to lose the force of these words either. All that they tell you to do, do and observe. Now, some have tried to solve this difficulty by claiming that Jesus was using irony here. <clears throat> right? That these words are so contrary to the rest of the Scripture that He's got to be like, like joking. Almost as if He's saying, yeah, and all that they tell you, do and observe. That's how some say it. I, I think it goes a bit too far. I think what Jesus is saying is here is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think is what he's saying. In other words, the disconnect between a preacher and his life doesn't mean that you have the opportunity to throw out everything that he says. Nor does he give you opportunity to neglect what they said. Just because these wicked men defiled the seat of Moses, their false teaching doesn't mean that you throw out the established authority structure. That's what he's saying. He says respect their authority. I think Paul illustrates this perfectly in Acts chapter 23. Paul is before the Sanhedrin being on trial. He begins his his defense talking about his clear conscience. And the high priest Ananias 
ordered a man who was near Paul to hit him in the mouth, the words he said about having a clear conscience. And Paul responded back and said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Using the words almost exactly that Jesus used here in verse 27, right? Whitewashed tombs. You outside look so good, but you whitewashed wall, God's going to get you. And then someone says, "Um, Paul, did you know that that's the high priest? And Paul went, oh. He said, I did not know that he was a high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Though he had authority, though he was abusing it, still the law says don't speak evil of the authority. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Though a hypocrite be found leading God's people, there's still some respect that ought to be given to their authority. Romans 13 speaks about this as well, describing the... The government, he says in Romans 13, 1 and 2, there's no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. I mean, these words would have come with equal surprise to the Romans. I mean, these Roman authorities were corrupt and not at all sympathetic to the cause of Christianity. From Rome came forth some of the most brutal persecutions that ever came upon the church. Perhaps you've seen pictures of the Colosseum where Christians were thrown to lions. That was in Rome. The heartbed of all Christian persecution. The emperors legalized and encouraged persecutions against Christians much like Vietnam is doing today. And yet Paul says that you ought to respect that authority. And the Vietnamese Christians have to respect that authority, though certainly God's authority is bigger. It's always a balance in Scripture. I think that's the balance that Jesus is getting at. He's saying here, all they do, tell you, do and observe. When hypocrites lead, even hypocritical leaders, respect their authority. Well, that's about all good they say. It's about all the good that Jesus says to these leaders. From here on in, it's all going to be bad. Let's get the second point. Though you're to do and observe what they say, Jesus tells his disciples, point number two, ignore their example. Verse 3b through 5, ignore their example. Jesus says, do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. This is a definition of what hypocrisy is. Saying, but not doing. Expecting from others what you are not willing to do yourself. Denouncing sin and yet enjoying it yourself. Taking the speck out of your brother's eye while neglecting the log in your own. Wanting things to be done, though not being willing to do them yourself. This was true of the Pharisees. Verse 4, they tie up heavy loads and lay them upon men's shoulders. I believe Jesus here is referring to the weight of all the admonitions that they would pile upon the people. They just pile them on. They say, you need to say these prayers. You need to read these scriptures. You need to do these things. You need to walk this way. They had rules for praying. How to pray. When to pray. What to pray. They had rules for Sabbath keeping. What to do. What not to do. How much to do. How much not to do. They had rules for washing hands. Where you to get the water. How you apply the water to your hands. When it must be done. Now in some sense, I, I do believe that there was some good intention here the Pharisees, because they viewed the law as so holy and so sacred that they wanted to to protect it. And they protected it by all these laws and regulations. A little bit like what God told Moses when he was up on Mount Sinai. 
God told him that you should set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up to the mountain or touch it, or touch even the border of the mountain, for whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. And, and all their tradition that, which they created, it's called the, the Mishnah, was all in an effort to protect and sanctify the law. Right? If you keep people here on the borders, then they won't even get close to the law to touch it. But however good intention it was, it created a system of legalism that was burdensome and difficult to bear. Using Jesus' words here, it tied up heavy loads upon men's shoulders. I mean, you simply can't live that way. You can't live rule upon rule upon rule upon rule. In fact, these religious leaders couldn't do it themselves. In Acts chapter 15, when Gentiles had come to faith, there was a a question that the religious leaders had, Christian religious leaders had in Jerusalem. You can read about it in Acts chapter 15. And and the question on the table is this, how much of the law should we require the Gentiles to keep? Particularly circumcision was the test case, but it had implications to the whole rest of the law. Peter stood up and said, why are you putting God to the test by placing upon the neck of these disciples a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. He's just talking there about circumcision. But even broader, he says, you're putting upon these people the burden of the law. He said, we believe that we Jews are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that the Gentiles are. See, salvation doesn't come by piling up rules. Salvation doesn't come by keeping everything in the law. It doesn't come by the do's and the don'ts. Salvation comes... Through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's really within this cultural context that the words of Jesus in Matthew 11 ought to ring true in your hearts. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. If there's one thing that the teaching of the Pharisees did, it demonstrated how impossible it was to live by rules. And those who've tried have always found it impossible to do. And so this morning, Jesus says to you, are you burdened with your weight of sin? Are you burdened with the demands that God places upon you to live perfectly righteous? He says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Jesus came and gave rest from these burdensome commandments. The scribes and the Pharisees weren't interested in rest. They were interested in piling it on. And pile it on, they did. Heavy loads upon men's shoulders, and yet they showed their hypocrisy. Last part of verse 4, yet they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Now again, this statement ought to catch you by surprise. I mean, of anybody, these Pharisees and scribes had tremendous zeal. They put forth tremendous efforts. In fact, I say there's no group of people ever on the planet that ever existed that would put more effort into living holy lives than these Pharisees. They weren't lazy. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus describes a picture of a Pharisee. He says, right, I, I'm not unjust. I'm not a swindler. I'm, I pay tithes of all that I get. I fast twice a week. Right? The Pharisee didn't cheat people. was fair. Lived a sexually pure life. Fasted twice a week. Gave a tenth of all that he received to the work of the Lord. That takes great effort, doesn't it? Why would Jesus say here then, they're unwilling to move with them so much as a finger? I think what Jesus is doing is beginning to unmask who these Pharisees really are. 
while outwardly they might appear to be good and work strenuously, Jesus says, listen, it's all a show. Outwardly they may pile up all those burdens, but yet they themselves don't want to do this well. When they're in the secrecy of their own home, they're doing something else. And verse 5 says this, right? When they do their deeds, it's to be noticed by men. The only reason that they appear zealous is because they're zealous for other people to see how zealous they are. The Pharisee could say, I tithe everything that I get. Because he was telling everybody, look at how righteous I am because I give all this stuff away. The reason he didn't steal is so he could tell people that he didn't steal. Always performing his righteousness before men. On the one hand, they're piling up rules and regulations, things they need to do. On the other hand, when no one's looking, I think they're, they're not doing it. I think that's the implication of verse 5. Right? When people are looking, oh, certainly they'll do it. But when people aren't looking, that's another story. They're different in secret than in public. That's what a hypocrite is. Different in secret than in public. In verse 5, we have a few examples that Jesus gives. They broaden their phylacteries. Some of you, probably most of you know what a phylactery is. It's a, it's a little box Jews used to take and write on a tiny little parchment three passages of Scripture from Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 11, and Exodus chapter 13. And, and they wrote these passages which said that God told these people to bind them as a sign on your hand and they should be as frontals on your forehead. In other words, put them on your hand and, and put them on your forehead so you might see them with your eyes, right? Be close to your mind, be close to your hand, you might do them and work and do it. The Jews took that literally. They have made these boxes they use to this day. The Hebrew word for this is a tefillin. You talk to a Hebrew person about phylacteries, they'll say, what is a phylactery? You talk to them about a tefillin, they'll say, oh, I know what you're talking about. There's intricate rules that they have. In fact, even today, they take a strap and they wrap it seven times around their left arm because their left arm is closer to the heart. They wrap it around their heart and then they wrap it around their fingers and their hands. They put it here, right, right on their left arm, their left hand. Then they put it right on the frontals of their forehead and so that they can you know, follow this command. And Jewish people do that to this day. And sadly, the Pharisees have forgotten the place of the heart. So externally motivated so that everybody can see their phylacteries, their tefillin, that they miss the heart. In fact, these very words inscribed in, in here says these words I'm commanding you should be on your heart. They got the hand, they got the head, they missed the heart. And the heart is the most important thing. In fact, these Jews placed so much emphasis upon externals, they made these tefillin nice and big for all to see. Right? Some might have little discreet boxes, but some would have you know, huge boxes they'd put on their hands, and some would have huge boxes they'd put on their forehead, trying to broaden their phylacteries, making them nice and big so everybody would see that I'm following the law according to the letter. And those who are the biggest phylacteries would win the prize being the most spiritual people. They also lengthen the tassels of their garments, what it says there in verse 5. And here again we see a command of God that's used to promote their own religiosity. Numbers 15, verse 38. Moses commanded the people to wear blue tassels on their garments. And these commands, this command was really to cause the Jewish people to see the tassels and then think of the commands of God. Listen to Numbers chapter 15, 39. It should be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them. So as they walked along, they saw their tassels. Oh, that's a command. I need, to, I need to remember the commands to do them. That's what the tassels were for. It's not like they were wrong. It was commanded in the Bible. In fact, Jesus also wore these tassels, I believe. 
In Matthew 9, verse 20, the woman came up from behind Jesus and merely wanted to touch the fringe of his garment. I believe it's talking about the tassels of his garment. But again, these scribes and Pharisees made a competition out of it. They wanted their obedience to the law to be published abroad, right? These tassels lengthened, maybe they thickened, and maybe they were ensured whenever they faded, they'd be replaced with bright blue tassels so everyone could see them. Nobody could miss them. And they lengthened their tassels, what it says. And Jesus says that such pious displays of religiosity should be ignored. Don't be like them. And I say, by application, when Christian leaders put forth intentional displays of their own righteousness, ignore their example. Just ignore them. Now, I know at this point, this is where I struggle. I struggle with this. In leading this church, I want to be like Paul who said, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. I want to be an example for you. And yet often I know that I give you a picture of my life which is beyond reality. I mean, think about last night, what did you picture me? Did you picture me thinking about this sermon? On my knees praying for hours for each of the families in this church. Pleading that God would bless Rock Valley Bible Church. Right? Is that how you see me? I watched the AFC wildcard game. Maybe you picture me consumed with the Word 24-7, always memorizing, always reading. You know what? Other things catch my attention far too much. I pray God may be thrilled with your Word. Don't think of me like that. When I purport myself like that, just ignore me, humor me. So I think I do too much. And when you see me being hypocritical, just ignore it. Now, don't, it's not to say to let it go, be indifferent to it. Yeah, there's Steve doing his, his thing. Listen, by all means, you see hypocrisy, come and tell me. And I will tell you, I have been helped by some of you in the church who have come to me and told me of things that I do that, you know, I think that's a little hypocritical. It's an act of love, and I have appreciated that. It's hard to hear. But I've appreciated it. I'm thankful for such demonstrations of love. And I say, pray for me and help for me. Help me. Help other leaders. Anybody else? You see hypocrisy in people. Talk to them. Try to help them. Because I'm blind to that. You're blind to it as well. These Pharisees were blind. When I say ignore the example, I simply mean don't learn godliness in that way. Godliness isn't about putting on a great show. Godliness is what you are like when you are before God alone. That's what godliness is. When nobody's looking, do you do the godly thing? That's genuine godliness. And Jesus warned about doing godliness and righteousness before men. He said in Matthew 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Do you know what happens if you practice your righteousness before men so they see you? Your reward? Gone. Jesus said, You have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. None. Zippo. Right? Zip, not a noodles. Right, kids? Nothing. Those who practice their righteousness before men have lost all credibility before God. God doesn't reward the outward, ostentatious displays of righteousness. But listen, God does reward secret giving. And He does reward secret praying. 
And he does reward secret fasting. You can read that in Matthew 6. Your reward will be with your Father in heaven. Godliness isn't about showing it for others. Godliness is about humility and service and, and bending and being low. But that comes in verse 11, and we're only on verse 5. Well, let's get to verse 6. Third thing, when hypocrites lead, respect their authority, ignore their example. Third thing, don't feed their egos. Maybe you've been to a, a national park before, Yellowstone, Yosemite, something like that, and as you're driving on the way in, you see this big sign that says, don't feed the... Don't feed the bears. Why don't you feed the bears? Because pretty soon they start liking human food. And pretty soon they start developing a, a taste for that. And pretty soon when people come, they say, oh, that's where I can get some of that food. And they start approaching people. And if they don't have food, they can turn aggressive. And maybe the people become food. It's very dangerous to feed the bears. That's what Jesus talks about here. Don't feed their egos. Look here at verse 6. He says this. <clears throat> they love the place of honor in the banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces being called rabbi. These are the things that the Pharisees loved. They loved recognition. They loved to be known as righteous people. They loved to be first like Theotrephes. Third John, verse 9. If ever there was a place of honor... These Pharisees were first ones to sit in that line, sit in that seat. In social settings, they loved the head of the table. They loved to sit the most important places. In religious settings, they loved to sit in the most important seats. They loved to sit in front of the congregation for all to see how important they were. They were at Rock Valley Bible Church, and there was a seat like this. Where would they sit? They would love to sit in this seat right here. They love to be honored and adored and respected. Oh, look at how godly that man is, sitting up front, sitting on the stage. He sits a foot, high, foot closer to heaven than everybody else. Yeah, there are subtle ways for these things to creep into Christian circles today as well, you think? And don't think that Christian pastors and leaders are immune to these type of things. I mean, too often... Pastors are placed on pedestals up high. And if ever you take anything and put it up high, where's the only place that it can go? It can only fall. And sadly, that's often what happens. Right? You elevate a pastor too high, and then after a season and time, you see, oh, maybe he's not as high as I thought he was, and then he falls. In your eyes, or in your mind... It's always going to happen. Always giving them honorable seats in social settings and titles when talking to them will simply lead to your disappointment someday when you realize that Christian leaders aren't always so honorable. Maybe you've attended churches where the pastor sits up in front of everybody. How many of you have attended churches like that? You know, you know what I call these seats here? I call them thrones. The thrones where the Christian leaders get to sit in them. And I've had a few occasions and sometimes sitting in front of a congregation in a seat like that. I've hated it. It has been pure torture for me to sit up front to think I am holier than everybody else and displaying that. As long as I lead this church, we won't be putting chairs up here. Okay, Doug? <laughs> well, 
What about titles? Respectful greetings are commonplace in churches today. Pastors oftentimes pursue higher degrees of learning, insist upon using their titles. I'm Dr. So-and-so, please, Dr. Brandon. That's what you need to call me. And there are churches that insist that their pastor be called Pastor So-and-so, Pastor Steve, Pastor Jill, Pastor Bob, Pastor Joe, not Jill, Pastor Joe, Pastor Bob. And I, I understand the reasoning, okay? In our society, there's, there's a measure of respect that ought to be paid to others. It's proper for a child to address an adult using words like Mr. and Mrs. In our culture today, we're so anti-authoritarian, right, that, that our culture wants to drop all titles. And so we use respectful titles. Listen, they help for us to affirm, again, positions of authority. But I want you to listen to the words of Jesus in verses 8 through 10 as if you've never heard them before. And you tell me if it's a good practice to have titles for people who are pastors. But uh, do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader that is Christ. Jesus here clearly tells us not to be called rabbi, teacher, or leader. Jesus clearly tells us don't call anyone else your father because you have one father. I don't think that's saying that you shouldn't call your biological father dad. Jesus simply means that your respectable titles to your spiritual authorities can lead you to have a distorted view of God. As you call them father, or as you call them rabbi, there's only one who leads, right? Jesus Christ is the senior pastor at Rock Valley Bible Church. All others are under-shepherds at best. But you can think wrongly about God by using titles of others that appropriate God. Now, at this point, let me just tell you, I don't struggle with this at all. I don't think so. At least, at least in, one, in one form of it, I don't struggle. I don't have any desire to be called pastor by any one of you. There's like zero desire in my heart for that. I, I don't feel like I need to ensure my respect through your use of this title. And, and maybe it has to do with my upbringing. I mean, I, I grew up in a church, had absolutely no desire to be a pastor. I had none. I mean, I looked at my pastors growing up. I didn't want to be like them at all. I didn't want to wear a robe, sit in front of the church, speak meaningless things from the pulpit, shake hands with everybody as they left the service. Just just be friends and go and just be out doing these religious things. I didn't want to do that. Sometimes I attend, say, weddings or funerals, those are nominally Christians. I look at what the pastor's doing at those churches and I say, that's not me. They're religious people doing religious things, like tying the knot in marriage or saying the right things. Somebody's got to say something at a funeral, so they kind of stand up and say it. I say, "That's that's not me. I don't view myself like that. I don't view myself as this separated holy man who's got to perform all these religious functions. I view myself as one of you. I really do. You all have given me a great privilege to do what you can't do. You freed me up full time to spend my whole life devoted to Christ and the church in ways that none of you can. And you pay me to study the Bible. What an unfathomable thing. You pay me to administrate and lead and guide the church. But, but I view I'm one of you. I view that others could do that just as well as I could. Some better. 
So if none of you ever call me Pastor Steve, listen, I'm fine with that. I mean, I, I prefer you call me Steve. Or the children call me Mr. Brandon. It's what I would prefer. The instruction of Jesus, I can't get away from it, right? Do not be called rabbi. Do not be called teacher. Though there are some things I struggle with that I think come along with this. Oftentimes those titles, and maybe this is what Jesus is getting at, is like saying something really good about somebody. Now, I like that when someone says something really good about me. I mean, I like hearing what a wonderful job I do, and I like hearing what a great sermon that I preached. And I I know I like that because I know how much I hate it when people tell me the bad job I'm doing. When I preach a dud of a sermon, and I know that others know it, I think that affects me more than anything else in the pastorate. Of just disappointing people. That affects me. And, and, and I think that, I, that can extend to all of pastoral ministry. I, I mean, I think about how many people could easily tell me, I don't, I don't call on people enough. I'm not, I'm not on the phone calling all of you enough. You know, I'm not encouraging to you enough. I'm not saying the right things well enough to you. I'm not loving enough. I'm not leading the church well enough. I'm not evangelizing the lost well enough. And you could go on and on and on and on and on about all the different things that I'm not doing very well. And I don't like that when that comes. That just shows how much I like when you say good things about me. Maybe that's the spirit of what Jesus is saying here about don't be called rabbi. Don't lift people up so much. You're always saying so much. And I think the key and the solution to that means a pastor is to really be humble. Because as John Bunyan says, the man who is down on his knees need fear no fall. It's where I need to be. But again, I, I get ahead of myself. That's in verse 11. I just have one more comment. In light of trying to balance my things here about verse 6 and 7, about the seats and respectable greetings, I just want to balance things for you. I don't think that thrones in front of a church are wrong in of themselves. And if you ever find yourself in a church that's got thrones, don't pull out Matthew 23 on them and say, what are you doing up there? That's so bad. Realize it's not prohibited. But what is prohibited for the pastors to covet those seats. So if the congregation says, we really want that, or the, the congregation says, no, let's take that seat away, and the pastor says, no, no, I like that seat. That's where you got troubles. The, if the congregation says, let's get rid of those seats, the pastor will say, amen, let's get rid of them. But it's when the pastor says, no, no, let's keep them, that's where you're in trouble. And also, with respect to titles, I don't believe that giving verbal honor to a pastor is wrong. I mean, Paul says, render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So if someone deserves honor, you give them honor. I think it's appropriate. In fact, Paul even says it's right for a hardworking elder to be worthy of double honor. So after service, you all can call me Pastor Pastor Steve if you want. Or double my salary. (laughs) I won't object to that. Listen. So if you insist upon calling me Pastor Steve, I'm not going to pull out Matthew 23 and reprove you. But know that it's dangerous for me. And know that it's possibly even dangerous for you. It's dangerous for you to think of spiritual leaders more highly not to think of them. And it's it's dangerous for spiritual leaders to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. Which leads me to my last point that I've alluded to several times. Verses 11 and 12. 
When hypocrites lead, be their model. Be their model. Be the servant yourself. Right? Ignore what they say. Don't feed their egos, but humbly be one who serves. That's what Jesus is saying. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. This is what the Pharisees were trying to do. They were exalting themselves, and Jesus said, you all will be humbled. You want to be great? You humble yourself, then you'll be exhausted. And you've heard this before, several times in Matthew. He's talked about this. Whenever people sought spiritual greatness, Jesus always directed them down to humble service. In Matthew 18, the disciples of Jesus came to Jesus and they said, Who's the greatest in the kingdom? You remember what he did? What did he do? He took a child and said, The greatest in the kingdom should be humble like this child. Remember when James and John brought their mother, came to Jesus, seeking a prominent place in the kingdom, sitting at the right and the left of Jesus in the kingdom. What did Jesus say? You want to be great in the kingdom? He said, Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. The context here in Matthew 23 is no different. You have scribes and Pharisees seeking greatness in the kingdom. And why did they seek the seat of Moses? Because they wanted to be great in the kingdom. Why do you think the scribes and Pharisees broadened their phylacteries and lengthened their tassels? They wanted to be great in the kingdom. Why do you think these scribes and Pharisees loved the places of honor and chief seats in the synagogue? They wanted to be great in the kingdom. Why do you think these scribes and Pharisees wanted to be called rabbi, teacher, leader, father? They wanted to be great in the kingdom. But Jesus takes that perspective and turns it all around. If you want to seek greatness, the way to do it is through humble service. You don't do it like the Pharisees did it. You don't exert yourself and put yourself in great positions of authority and draw a claim to yourself. That's not the way to do it. You want to be great in the kingdom, you ought to be humble. So I simply ask you, are you humble? Is that where you are? May God give us a humble church, a humble leadership, a humble church that always looks to others more important than yourself. So when hypocrites lead, do these things. Respect their authority. Ignore their example. Don't feed their egos and be their model. I hope you can apply many things here, especially this last point. Let's pray together. Lord, I do pray that you would make us a humble people. Those who don't seek greatness for themselves. As the scripture says, you seeking great things for yourself, seek them not. I pray, God, that you would stir within our hearts humble service to one another. Encouraging one another. Identifying God's grace in one another's lives, helping others, being servants of all. Lord, that you might look upon our church as being a, a great church filled with people who are great in the kingdom. Now, who cares what the world believes? Who cares what other Christians think? Who cares what other churches look at? We care about what you want. And even from the pages of Scripture, from the mouth of Jesus himself, Lord, you look 
at the humble and delights in them. I do pray for myself. You would humble me that I would be a humble man. God, to be able to admit when I don't lead right, when I'm not sufficient to the task, to receive that criticism. For us as well, I pray for all of us, that we would be humble people to receive criticism and to take it and to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Lord, not for our glory, but for the glory of Christ alone. It's in whose name we pray.